Welcome to LA Opera Podcasts. You're listening to a conversation recorded on March 25th, 2018, between James Conlon, LA Opera's Richard Seaver Music Director, and Stephen Fry, acclaimed English actor, director, author, and all-around international treasure. I should officially welcome you back. Uh, any, I don't know how many of you might have been here last year. Uh, when Stephen Fry spoke about Zalome, because that was Oscar Wilde, and he is Oscar Wilde. <laughs> For any of you who have not seen the movie, go get it. <laughs> and a short while ago, I was, you know, sort of going through my books at home, and suddenly I see a book that's called Mythos, written by Stephen Fry. I had completely forgotten that I had it. And I said, hey, you know what? We should have him come back, if he will, and if he's nice enough and kind enough, and he's here to do one at the end of Orpheus. And so we were really lucky he was available, and so we'd like to all welcome you back soon. It's a thrill to be here. And it really was the most extraordinary coincidence, because I did write this book last year, Mythos, which is a retelling of the earliest section of the sort of Greek mythological arc, if you like, from the uh, creation of Cosmos uh, through the first primordial deities uh, and the Titans and the Olympians and, and the creation of, of humankind and Prometheus and Pandora and those early stories. And I'm, I'd started work because um, my publishers, Penguin, were very uh, kind enough to ask me to do another two, no uh, two uh, retellings, uh, volume two being the heroes. Uh, Theseus, Jason, Heracles, and so on, and the third one being being the Trojan War, and it's after myth, as I like to call it. And um, I had just finished writing about Orpheus when James got in touch, asking if I would talk. So if it's all right with you, I'd just like to start by reading you what, what I've written. This is a very much a work in progress, and, and, and you are the first people to hear it. But a, as you've experienced one telling of Orpheus, and of course the beauty of Greek myth is that there are hundreds of tellings that are possible, um, because somewhere between the vibrations that come from a metaphor and a, an expression of collective consciousness and a legend and a, an ideal telling of an idealized romance, uh, myth lives, and, and of course it is endlessly retellable. Anyway, uh, I'll, 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 if it gets too long, you can shut me up, because I have no idea how long this lasts. Orpheus was the Mozart of the ancient world. He was more than that. Orpheus was the Cole Porter, the Shakespeare, the Lennon McCartney, the Adele Prince, Placido Domingo, Lady Gaga, and Kendrick Lamar of the ancient world, the acknowledged sweet-singing master of words and music. During his lifetime and afterwards, his fame spread around the Mediterranean and beyond. It was said that his sweet voice and matchless playing could charm the beasts of the field, the fishes of the sea, the birds of the air, and even the insensate rocks and waters. Rivers themselves diverted their courses to hear him. Hermes invented the lyre. Apollo improved upon it, but Orpheus perfected it. It is agreed that his mother was the muse Calliope, but there is less certainty about his father. And here we come to a theme that we'll repeat in many variations, that of double parenthood, double fatherhood. In the early days of gods and men, the divine trod the earth with mortals, befriended them, ravished them, coupled with them, punished them, tormented them, and in all ways interacted, interceded, interoperated, interpenetrated, intertwined, interbred, intersected, and interfered with us. But... Over time, as age succeeded age and mankind grew and prospered, the intensity of these interrelations slowly diminished. 
Calliope, beautiful voice, the muse of epic poetry, was Orpheus's mother by a mortal, the Thracian king Iagrus. But extraordinarily, Apollo was Orpheus's father too. Perhaps he coupled with Calliope while she was already pregnant with Orpheus. It seems eggs could be doubly fertilized in a double fatherhood process that does actually exist in nature and goes under the enchanting name of heteropaternal superfecundation. <laughs> Young Orpheus played with his mother and eight muse aunts on Parnassus, and it was there that the doting Apollo presented his son with a golden lyre, which he taught him to play. Soon the prodigy's skill at the instrument exceeded that even of his father, the god of music. Unlike Marcius, who may have been his stepbrother, Orpheus did not boast about his prowess, nor did he make this mistake of challenging his divine father to a competition. Instead, he spent his days mastering his craft, charming the birds of the air and beasts of the field, causing the branches of the trees to bend down and listen to his lyre, and the fishes to jump and bubble with joy at his soft and honeyed music. His character matched the sweetness of his playing and singing. He played for the love of music and his songs celebrated the beauty of the world and the glory of love. So great was his fame that when Jason gathered a crew for the Argo and his quest for the Golden Fleece, he knew he had to have Orpheus aboard. But more of Jason later. Orpheus's reward for his bravery and loyalty during the voyage of the Argo was to find love in the shape of the beautiful Eurydice. The wedding was quite an affair, as might be imagined. The muses came, Thalia, the, the comic muse entertained with sketches. Terpsichore led the dances. All nine sisters delighted the guests with examples of their art. I'll, I'll cut some of the detail of the dance. Um, Orvis and Eurydice set up a happy house together in Pimplea, a small town that nestled in the valley below Parnassus, the mountain of the muses. It was Eurydice's misfortune to catch the eye of Aristeus, a minor god of beekeeping, agriculture, and other country crafts. One afternoon on her way home from the market, she took a shortcut through a water meadow. In the distance, she could hear her beloved Orpheus strumming his lyre as he tried out a new and lovely tune. Suddenly, Aristeus burst out from behind a poplar tree and bore down upon her. Frightened, she dropped the bread and fruit she was carrying and fled wildly, zigzagging across the fields. Aristeus pursued her, laughing, Eurydice cried out, Orpheus, Orpheus. Orpheus put down his lyre. Was that his wife's voice? Eurydice, help me, help me, cried the voice. Orpheus ran towards where the sound was coming. Eurydice wove this way and that, trying to escape the remorseless Aristeus, whose hot breath she could feel on her neck. Orpheus appeared, running towards her. At the sight of an anxious husband, Aristeus, bitterly disappointed, slowed his pace and turned away. At the same time, Eurydice stumbled into a ditch, a ditch that was the home of an adder, which struck out angrily, sinking its fans into her heel. Orpheus arrived by Eurydice's side in time to see her sink back in mortal agony. He took her in his arms. He breathed into her, sang softly into her ear, begging her to return to him but the venom of the viper had done its work and her soul left her body. The cry that escaped from Orpheus struck horror and fear into the whole valley. The muses heard it, the gods on Olympus heard it. It was the last sound they were to hear from Orpheus for some time. 
His mourning was as complete and absolute as could be. His lyre he put aside. He would never sing again. He would never smile again, compose a lyric again, so much as hum again. What life was left to him would be spent in pain and anguished silence. The town of Pimplea went into a kind of lamentation too, grieving more over the loss of Orpheus's music than the life of Eurydice, popular as she had been. The nymphs of the woods, waters, and mountains fell into mourning too. Even the gods of Olympus pined and fretted at the drying up of his music. Apollo went to visit his son. He found him sitting out in front of his house, gazing across the very fields where Eurydice had met her end. Come now, said Apollo. It's been more than a year you cannot mope like this forever. Watch me. <laughs> what would persuade you to pick up your lyre again? Only the living presence of my beloved wife. Well, a thoughtful frown appeared upon the golden god's smooth brow. Eurydice is in the underworld. The gates are guarded by Cerberus, the three-headed hand of hell. No one has ever penetrated the underworld and returned, least of all returned with a dead soul. But if anyone can do it, you can do it. What are you saying? Why not go and get her? You just said no one has ever got in and returned. Ah, but no one has ever had the power that you have, Orpheus. What power? The power of music. If anyone could tame Cerberus and charm Charon the ferryman, it is you. If anyone could melt the hearts of Hades and Persephone, it is you. You really think? Have faith in what music can do. Orpheus went into the house, retrieved his lyre from the interior of the dusty cupboard into which he had thrust it when in the depths of his desolation. Restring it with these, said Apollo, plucking from his head 24 golden hairs. Orpheus restrung the lyre and tuned it. Never had it sounded more beautiful. Now go and come back with Eurydice. Orpheus traveled from Pimplea to Cape Teneron in the Peloponnese, the southernmost point of all Greece, where could be found a cave that formed one of the entrances to the underworld. The path from the cape slowed down. After many mazy turns to the main gate guarded by Cerberus, the slavering, shuddering, slobbering, three-headed dog, offspring of the primordial monsters Echidna and Typhon. At the sight of a living mortal daring to enter the halls of hell, Cerberus wagged his serpent tail and drooled in anticipation. Only the dead could pass him. And in order to dwell in peace in the meadows of Asphodel, they would bring with them a piece of food with which to placate the beast. Orpheus had no sop for Cerberus, but his art. Inwardly quaking but outwardly assured, he brushed the strings of the golden lyre with his fingers and began to sing. At the sound of the song, Cerberus, who had bunched himself up, ready to bound forward and savage this presumptuous mortal, gave a whining gulp and froze in his tracks. His huge eyes in all three of his heads rounded and he began to pant with pleasure and an inward joy that was entirely new to him. He dropped down from his haunches and curled himself on the cold stone of the hallway like a huntsman's favorite hound after a long day in the fields. Orpheus's song slowed into a gentle lullaby. Cerberus's six ears flopped down, his six eyes closed, his three tongues passed across his three chops with a great slap, and his three massive heads dropped into a deep and happy sleep. Even the snake of his tail drooped in peaceful slumber. 
Orpheus climbed over the snoring form and still cooing his lullaby, he headed along the cold, dark passageway until any further progress was blocked by the Black River Styx. Karen the ferryman pulled his way towards him from the farther bank where he had just deposited a new soul. He stretched out his hand for payment but quickly withdrew it when he saw that the young man standing before him was alive. Hence, cried Charon in a hoarse whisper. In reply, Orpheus strummed his lyre and began a new song, a song praising the overlooked profession of ferryman. Glorying the unrecognized diligence and industry of one ferryman in particular, Charon, the great Charon, whose central role in the great mystery of life and death should be celebrated the world over. Never had Charon's ferry skimmed the black waters of the Styx with such alacrity. Certainly never before had Charon, his skiff now beached, put an arm round a fair and helped them gently to disembark. And for sure, never, not in all eternity, had such a stupid, fatuous smile played on the ferryman's habitually gaunt and unrelenting features. Charon stood supporting himself on his pole, his adoring gaze fixed on the person of Orpheus, who with a final wave and strum of the lyre was soon swallowed up by the darkness of the passageways that led to the palace of Hades and Persephone. On entering the great hall, Orpheus found himself facing the three judges of the underworld, Minos, Radamanthus, and Aeacus, enthroned in a grim semicircle. The light of Orpheus's living spirit dazzled their eyes. Sacrilege! Sacrilege! How dare the living invade the realm of the dead? Summon Thanatos to suck the insolent soul from his body. Orpheus took up his lyre in a trice, and before the last command could be obeyed, the three judges were smiling, nodding their heads, and tapping their sandaled toes in time to his intoxicating strains. What is the meaning of this? At the sight of Hades himself, the king of the underworld, and his pale consort Persephone, the chamber fell into an instant and guilty silence. As in a game of musical chairs, they froze to a halt with a thud and a skid. Only Orpheus appeared unmoved. Hades curled a beckoning finger. If you wish to avoid an eternal punishment more excruciating than those of Ixion, Sisyphus, and Tantalus combined, you had better explain yourself, mortal. What possible excuse could you have? Not an excuse, but a reason, the best and only reason, Hurt reply, and what is this reason? Love. Hades replied with a barrage of bleak barks that was the closest he came to laughing. Ah, my wife, Eurydice is here. I must have her back. Must? Persephone stared at him in disbelief. You dare use such a word? My father Apollo. We do no favors for Olympians, said Hades. You are mortal, and you have trespassed into the realm of the dead. That is all we need to know. Perhaps my music may change your mind. Music, we are immune to its charms here. Queen Persephone whispered briefly in her husband's ear. Hades nodded. Fetch Eurydice, he commanded. One song, he said to Orpheus. You may sing one song. If it fails to delight the relentless eternal agony of your torture till the end of time will be the talk and terror of the cosmos. If your music moves us, well, we will allow you and your woman to return to the world above. When Eurydice's spirit floated into the hall and she saw 
Orpheus standing so boldly before the king and queen of the dead, she let out a great sigh of joy and wonder. Orpheus saw the shimmering form of her shade and cried out too. Yes, yes, said Hades testily, most affecting. Now, your song. Orpheus took up his lyre and gave a deep breath. Never had an artist asked more of their art. The moment his hands touched the strings, everyone present knew that they were going to hear something entirely new. Nimbly, his fingertips flew up and down, causing a cascade of trilling notes so quick and pure that everyone caught their breath. And now, out of the golden ripple, emerged the voice. It asked everyone to think of love. Surely, even here, in the dark caverns of death, love still sat in their souls. Could they remember feeling for the first time the sweeping rush of love? Love came to peasants, kings, and even gods. Love made all equal. Love deified, yet love leveled. Orpheus reached the climax of his song to Eros. It had wound its way along the passageways and through the chambers, galleries, and hallways of hell, binding all who heard it, the servants of Hades, the emissaries of death, and the souls of the departed, in a spell that took them for as long as the music played in their ears, far away from the remorseless miseries of their eternal captivity and into a kingdom of light and love. Your wish is granted boomed Hades as the last notes faded away. Your wife may depart. At his words, Eurydice's shade took on the substance and form of quick and breathing life. She ran into her husband's arms and they held each other fast. But a frown was forming on Hades' brow. The loss of just one dead soul tormented him. When it came to the spirits doomed to spend eternity in his kingdom, he was a hoarder, a miser of the meanest kind. Wait! The moment Eurydice had returned to flesh and blood, Orpheus had stopped playing and singing. Already the magical hold of the music was weakening. It was a memory, a keen and a beautiful one, but the transcendent mood it engendered, like all the keenest pleasures, vanished like steam the moment the closing notes died away. Hades now regretted bitterly that while imprisoned in the bewitching coils of Orpheus's song, he could have been so weak as to agree to Eurydice's release. How foolish he had been to give his word before so many witnesses. He leaned across for a whispered consultation with Persephone. Nodding with a small smile of triumph, he kissed her cheek and pointed a finger at Orpheus. Let go of the woman, turn and leave us. But, but you said she will follow. As you make your way to the upper world, she will remain ten paces behind you. But if you look back, if you cast so much as the briefest backward glance in her direction, you will lose her. Trust, Orpheus the musician. You must show that you honor us and have faith in our word. Now go. Orpheus took Eurydice's face in his hands, kissed her cheek, and turned to leave. Remember, Persephone called after him, look back for just one instant and she will be ours. No matter how many times you return and how many songs you sing, you will have lost her forever. I won't be far behind. Have faith, said Eurydice. Orpheus had reached the door that led to life and freedom. Faith, replied Orpheus, his eyes fixed resolutely ahead of him. 
And so he began to make his way along the slowly rising flagstone corridors and passageways. Hundreds of flitting souls acknowledged him and breathed messages of good luck as he passed. Gates and doors opened before him as he went. To encourage Eurydice, but mostly to reassure himself, he called out continually, Still there, my darling? Still there? Not tiring? Always ten paces behind? Trust me. So close now. Indeed, over the last 200 or so paces, Orpheus had become slowly aware of a cool breeze fanning his face and fresh air filling his nostrils. Now he saw light ahead, not the underworld's light of rush torches, pitch lamps and burning oil, but the pure light of living day. He quickened his step and pressed forward. So close, so fantastically close, in just 15, 14, 13, 12 steps, they would be free, free to live their lives again as husband and wife, free to have children, to travel the world together. Oh, the places they would visit, the wonders they would see, the songs and poetry and music he would compose. The mouth of the cave opened wide as Orpheus strode forwards with joy and triumph in his heart, one step out of the shadows and into the light. He had done it. He was out in the world. The sun was warming his face and its light was dazzling his eyes. Ten more steps forward, just to be sure. Now he could turn and take his beloved in his arms. But no, 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 and no. Orpheus had not known it, but his last 20 or so steps had accelerated into a full run. Eurydice had quickened her own pace to try to match his, but when he turned round... She was still too far behind, still in shadow, still in the realm of the dead. Her eyes, filled with horror and fear, caught his for a second before the light inside her seemed to die and she was pulled back into the darkness. With a cry of anguish, Orpheus ran into the cave, but she was flying away from him at tremendous speed now, no longer flesh and blood, but an immaterial spirit once more. Her unhappy cries echoed around as Orpheus ran blindly into the blackness after her. The doors and gateways that had opened up to let them leave now slammed shut in his face. He beat his fists against them until they bled, but to no avail. He could no longer hear her cries of despair, only his own. If he had waited just two blinks of an eye before turning, they would have been united and free. Just two heartbeats. Orpheus's later life was a sad one. He continued to compose, to play and to sing, but he never found a woman to match his Eurydice. Indeed, it is reported from several sources that he turned away from women altogether and lavished what affection he had left on the male youths of Thrace. The Thracian women, the Cyconians, followers of Dionysus, were so enraged they threw sticks and stones at him. The sticks and stones, however, were so charmed by his music that they refused to hurt him and just hung in midair. <laughs> At last, the Cyconian women could bear the degradation and insult of being ignored no longer. And in a Bacchic frenzy, they tore Orpheus to pieces, pulling off his arms, legs, and wrenching the head from his shoulders. The golden harmonies of Apollo were always an affront to dark Dionysian dances and dithyrams. But Orpheus's head, still singing, floated down the river Hebrus and out into the Mediterranean, where it found its way onto the beach at Lesbos. There it was taken up by the inhabitants and placed in a cave. For many years, people came to the cave to ask the head of Orpheus questions, and always it sang the most melodious prophecies in reply. 
At last his father Apollo, perhaps jealous that his shrine was threatening the supremacy of his own Delphic oracle, silenced him. The golden lyre was carried heavenwards by his mother, the muse Calliope, where it was placed among the stars as the constellation Lyra, which contains Vega, the fifth brightest star in the firmament. His aunts, the other eight muses, gathered up the fragments of his body and buried them at Libithra, below Mount Olympus, where nightingales sang over his grave. Finally at peace, Orpheus's spirit descended once more to the underworld, where he was again reunited with his beloved Eurydice. Thanks to Offenbach, they do a joyful can-can in the underworld together every single day. Stephen, you can catch your breath and have something to drink. Uh, you've thrilled us all with this great retelling of the story. Uh, so uh, we all want to know, when is the book going to be available? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in the process of finishing up Heracles at the moment, and uh, then, um, then I've got a few, a few, bit, few other bits, and I, I should be finished with it in a month or so, and then it'll go to publishers in London and probably in the autumn, in the fall, I should say, because my last one came out in the fall, so we don't want to over, you know, overfill the market, don't saturate. So. Well, while, I, while everyone's waiting, you can go get the first volume. What do yes. you say to that? Well, the first volume hasn't been published here yet. So Why do I have it? I don't, well, it, it was only published in London just before Christmas, so, so there's always a bit of a, a wait, isn't there? But I'm sure if you do something clever on Amazon, you'll get it delivered. From <laughs> <laughs> well, if you know your way around the underworld like Orpheus, you could get something on Amazon. <laughs> that would be exactly. good. Yeah. Uh, we are, well, we're just thrilled to have you here. I, I, I want to ask the question, what made you decide to write these books? What, what moved you to do that? Well, I, I, as a boy, I always loved the Greek myths. I loved the stories, um, and, and I, there were marvelous retellers of them. Uh, the, the, the English poet and, and mythographer Robert Graves wrote some, some wonderful versions. They were quite sort of pseudo-scholarly, his proper books, with lots of footnotes and extraordinary references all the way back to previous mythologies like Sumerian and Babylonian, so it's quite academic. And then there were a few others. Roger Lancelin Green, the British writer, did some wonderful versions. And I particularly like the American. Um, um, and there was Bernard Evslin, who, who wrote a t t terrific one, mostly for children, I guess. Edith Hamilton I really admired. I think she was probably the finest of them all. And, and uh, then you go back to Bullfinch and uh, and Hawthorne, and, and, and there's a great tradition of, of retelling these stories. And it, it, it just struck me that, really, that I hadn't read anyone that had come into the modern age enough to be able to be a little bit more honest. I don't mean deliberately to be sort of erotic and violent, but there had been a bit of bowdlerization because children are fascinated by these stories. But I think if you, I was sort of pitching this at anyone age between I think 12 and, 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 and 100, um, and, and I think um, most parents would uh, allow their 12-year-olds to have a, a slightly greater sense of the, of, of the nature of humanity and its darker sides, if you like, than, than maybe they were in the 1950s and 60s. Um, so, and, and I just felt that also there were other sources that uh, I had come across that I thought were interesting. And I just loved the retelling, but not the explaining. I think it's a thing you can do in conversation, and when you read them, you, you think, oh, the Greeks were expressing this side of our humanity, or they were, but they're not allegories exactly. There are a few of the myths that are allegorical, like the Cupid and Psyche story, which is an obvious, you know, 
uh, allegory of, of erotic love, eros, and, and, and the love of suke, suke is the soul or the mind, and most of us would agree that proper love is a union of both those things. So some Greek myths do have clear meanings, if you like, but most of them are much more subtle and evanescent. Now, um, you've selected a certain amount of that. You told the beginning of the story, mm. as it were, and now you're getting into more of uh, the second generation. Yes. Yeah. And when that's all through, what are you going to do then? Well, um, what's so interesting about Greek myth is that there is a real sort of sense of a timeline. There's, um, uh, if you look at the early primordial deities, it, it reminds me um, of the early days of computer gaming, when the very first game that I ever saw was, was that thing called Ping or Pong, or it's called Ping or Pong, that's Turing Dot, uh, you know what I mean. Um, uh, the little sort of white square that was supposed to be a ball that would bounce off the sides of a television screen and you had a bat that went up and down and it bounced off it. That was it. It was kind of, you know, four-bit computing. And that's what the first generation of gods were. They were very clunky, not resolved characters. They were sky and earth and darkness and night and fear. And they were just principles of ideas. But the next generation under Kronos and Rhea were the Titans. And they had slightly more personality. And then their children, Zeus and Hera and Demeter and, 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 and so on, they, they were real full rounded characters. So it was as if it was going up in resolution. Suddenly you, you were getting 8-bit, 16-bit, 32-bit, uh, anti-aliased, uh, if you're a nerd like me, you'll know what that means, and, and so on, until you're getting 3D um, and, and 4K images of the most perfect. Uh, and, and that's when the humanity arrives, when Prometheus makes us. And you know, one of the things that's so fascinating, James, I, I loved the internet when it came, and, and you can't think, so far from Greek myth, and you know, I thought as it arrived, this is going to break down bar barriers, and this is this is going to make us all love each other. This is giving us free art and music and literature. It's giving us uh, access to the darkest corners of the world. Will be lit. Um, we will speak to each other. There will be freedom. Um, all the nativism and hatred and tribalism will be dissolved. Um, and and uh, this is all gifted. And then I suddenly remembered, of course, that the Greek for all gifted is Pandora. And Pandora was the all gifted, and she came down as a punishment from Zeus to mankind, and she had that famous box, which was actually a jar, but, and, and she was told not to open it, and she opened it. And if you remember, all the ills of the world came out of it, the hatred and the lies and the, the pestilence and the famine and the, and the, and, and the murders and the lies, everything bad came out. And, and I felt the, the internet was like that. I mean, it was so full of promise. It was so full of gifted. And then suddenly out flew the trolls and the fakers and the, you know, the malware and, and the hatred. And suddenly everything got really dark and bad. And then I thought even more relevant to us now as we stand on the brink of an extraordinary new age um, in terms of technology as the convergence of AI and robotics and uh, brain-machine interfacing and... Uh, um, you know, new things like CRISPR gene editing and genomics generally, new materials like nanotubes and graphene and, um, and, and whole new ways of, you know, bionically augmenting the human being and up, up, you know, uploading our minds and all, all these things on their own are so extraordinary, but they're all converging in the most extraordinary way. It's as if we're standing on the beach and they're um, swelling up on the, on, the, on the sea in the horizon is this enormous tsunami 
of technological change, an existentially systemic transformative moment in our history, bigger than the Gutenberg revolution, revolution or the industrial revolution or even the agricultural revolution. And the Greeks have given us the tools to look at it, you know, because we can be sure, whether we like it or not, that by the end of this century, there will be sapient creatures, whether they're made of metal or of bits of flesh or they're just existing in a, in, a, in, a, in a vaporous form as software, they will be sapient. They will have an intelligence that is really extraordinary and would probably fool us past what scientists call the Turing test. Um, and the, the question we'll be facing is, do we deny these intelligences self-consciousness and, and just keep them as servants and slaves to us, or do we grant them the ability to develop their intelligences. And that's the problem that faced Zeus when he and Prometheus created mankind as little toys to play with. And Zeus did not want us to equal gods. And so he denied us fire, both in the literal sense of that transformative phenomenon in nature that allowed us to burn and to be superior to animals, to frighten away predators and to cook food and to melt and smelt and, 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 and make weapons and do extraordinary things. But also the, in, the fire inside, the, the spark, the, the, the creative fire, the divine fire. And Prometheus, our friend, stole it and gave it to us. And sure enough, we overcame the gods and in a few generations, the heroes had got rid of all the monsters and dragons and the Trojan War ended and, and man's relationship with the gods ended and we became Stone Age and then civilized so-called. But now we're facing the same problem. Do we, like Prometheus, give them fire or do we, like Zeus, deny it them? And of course, as the period of the Enlightenment developed, this is exactly a question that the most you know, great romantic Beethoven wrote a Promethean overture in just six months before Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, subtitled The Modern Prometheus, was published. People became very interested in this idea because as the ecclesiastical idea of God and the hierarchy of heaven was uh, somehow dispensed with by science and free thought, it became very apparent that, um, that we stood on our own and, and that uh, we had to free ourselves. We had, you know, we had to rely on our own, our own wit, our own intelligence and ability to understand. And, and the Greek myths, as I say, they just, they really got there. They understood what it is to be alive, what it is to be human, what, and that if there are gods, then this capricious, unjust, hilarious, juicy and remarkable world must have been created by unjust, capricious, hilarious and juicy deities because it doesn't make sense otherwise, why would it be the way it is? Anyway, that's a rather long answer, but that's... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, I think we all, I, I could listen to you for hours and hours well, and hours. No, let me, but let me ask you, because I had the pleasure, um, um, Maestro, of your remarkable production. I mean, two, two art forms for the price of one in opera and ballet, and, and I... I know you're, um, um, uh, as a musician, but also as an as a artist, you're very curious and you, you, you research very deeply into the worlds of the operas that you bring to life. And I, I wonder what, what sort of interest you had and, or previously about uh, Orpheus and what, whether it's changed your mind working with the Gluck. Well, this, this production, in a certain way, uh, fell into our lap uh, yeah, because John Neumeyer had to create created this idea, and so several theaters got together 
a co-production. Um, John Neumeyer, as you know, is the director of the ballet in Hamburg. And so the Hamburg Ballet will do it next year. It was premiered in Chicago this year at the Chicago Lyric with the Joffrey. And of course, we're so really, really lucky to have the Joffrey here to collaborate with you. I have never. Yeah. I mean, I've never had the pleasure of working with such, such great dancers. Now, it's very different for us. You know, we live in different worlds. The musicians and the dancers, we speak different languages. So, so sometimes we have to come to, you know, to understand each other. But uh, finally, I, I said to a few friends in the orchestra, I said, do you mind if I don't pay any attention to you tonight, to this afternoon? <laughs> I really want to see it well. I want to really look at, the, look at it well and have this wonderful <laughs> memory of this, of this production. And, um, and it's been, um, I fell in love with this opera, and for those of you that were my pre-performance, heard this already, but I fell in love with this opera when I was 16 or 17, um, because in New York City there was a, there was a concert performance with Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau singing Orfeo, and Elizabeth Schwarzkopf singing wow. Eurydice, and Lucia Pop as <laughs> Amour. And I fell in love, and that was that. <laughs> but um, productions are, don't come around that often, and I never mm. had a chance. I did do a, con several concert performances back in the 80s, and I have done second act as a concert work. Mm. Uh, I did the Italian version. Right. This is the first time for me with the French, French version. I don't think I ever, I'm a little bit like Orpheus now, having, having fallen in love with this production and all mm. of those dancers, I don't think I want to do another production. I think I'll just <laughs> play my harp for the rest of, the, rest of my life and just remember this. I cannot imagine uh, something as, as uh, overwhelming as this. And, as I pointed out, and let's boy, we've, well, you know, you've thrilled us with your first of all with your text, um, and also with your vision, which is extraordinary. Uh, so to end on a very mundane, bring mm. it down, bring, mm. bring the level down a little bit. <laughs> um, as I pointed out to you at the beginning of um, the first opera, really was uh, Eurydice. Eurydice was written in 1600 uh, in Florence. It's lost, uh, so we don't have it, but we know it was written, and there was another one in 1602. And then in 1607, Claudio Monteverdi wrote L'Orfeo. And that is the oldest opera we have that is still played and listened to today. And then in the next year, there were literally dozens of versions of mm. Orpheus. Um, and there continued to be, the pace slowed down a little bit in the 19th century and in the 20th century, but still people, uh, composers continue to return to it, and I'm sure there'll be many more. So the question I want to ask you now, this is the mundane, bring that. So Orpheus has had his day really been well represented in the opera world. What, what, which myth, which character, who would you, who would you like to see, um, what story would you love to see turned into an opera that the best of your knowledge has never been made into an opera? Pick a Greek, pick a Greek <laughs> god, pick a Greek story, anything you like, and, and That's imagine. That's a really good question. Such is my ignorance and such is the depth and variety of opera writing that I'll probably mention stories. You'll go, oh, there are four operas of that. But um, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, obviously, one of the things you fall in love with when reading the original sources is the poetry of uh, the much later Latin poet, um, Ovid, um, who, who, who wrote Amores, and, and which contains some of the stories, and, and particularly um, Metamorphoses, which are these stories of the transformations, which I absolutely adore. So I would think um, if someone could put together, you know, the story of Arachne, the weaver, 
um, and the story of Echo and Narcissus, which is a stunning story. It's so beautiful, so tragic, so charming. There's something very beautiful about it. I made up my own one, which I put in Mythos, which was to, um, uh, it was sort of based on a vague truth, but that um, when Zeus and Hera got married, um, they put out a, a, a competition amongst all the creatures of the world as to someone to provide the food for their wedding. And uh, they all came, they thrilled and, and tried. And at the wedding, there were all these tables laid out, a bit like MasterChef or something. And, and, and Zeus and Hera walked up and down, and, you know, and there was the, this family of herons had provided a, a jelly, you know, with uh, bits of, I don't know, sea cucumber and things in it. And they tried that, and it was all right. And, and they were sort of going around, and nothing was really getting them until they came to this tiny little thimble-sized pot of this sort of, gummy resin and Zeus thought, oh, this is going to be tree resin or something, because the Greeks put that in their wine, as you know, because they're not all brilliant Greeks. They do have very bad ideas as well. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and they sipped and they go, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. What is it? And this girl sitting, you know, behind this little female creature um, called Melissa, and she explained that she made it and she went to visit the flowers one by one and she, uh, she produced it and she called it honey. And, um, and Zeus said that she won the competition, and whoever won the competition was going to have a, a wish granted by Zeus. And he said, you can have any wish you like. And she said, well, I'd like, it's really difficult creating this, <coughs> this honey, because it takes me weeks and weeks just to make this tiny pot. And all the creatures love the smell of it, and they come, and it just takes one little swipe of a paw from a bear, and the whole, lo the whole lot's gone, and I've got no defense. So if you could give me a weapon, if you could give me a weapon that would kill anybody who tries to steal my honey, and, and the clouds went dark, and Zeus frowned. He said, that is the most selfish wish imaginable. I'm not going to grant it. She said, but you promised. Da, 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 I will give you a weapon. I'll give you a weapon. It will cause great pain to anyone who steals it. But it won't kill them. It'll kill you. Use it once. And that's why, to this day, the bee, of course, has this barbed sting that's left behind in the skin and when they fly away, it rips out their insides and they die, unlike the wasp who can sting as many times. And what's interesting is that the, to this day, biologists, zoologists, entomologists, the name for the order of bee is Hymenoptera, which is Greek for wedding wings. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think we are all deeply grateful to Stephen for coming out with us, and we thank you and hope you'll come again. Stephen, you're thank always you welcome very much. here. Oh, thank you, you so, thank so, you. so thank much. You. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a conversation recorded on March 25th, 2018, between James Conlon, LA Opera's Richard Seaver Music Director, and Stephen Fry, acclaimed English actor, director, author, and all-around international treasure. Thanks for listening.